welcome to the Open Div Podcast, a series of conversations around spirituality and meaning making in the modern world. I'm Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and I'll be your host for season one, Rewilding, in which we explore nature-based rites, initiations, and spiritual practices that are accessible and authentic to a modern audience. For more on Open Div, you can visit us at opendiv.org. For this episode, I was joined by Rabbi Jill Hammer, a scholar, author, teacher, mystic, poet, priestess, and midrashist. Rabbi Hammer is the Director of Spiritual Education at the Academy for Jewish Religion. She is also the co-founder of the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute, a program in spiritual leadership for Jewish women. Rabbi Hammer is committed to an earth-based and wildly mythic view of the world in which nature, ritual, and story connect us to the body of the cosmos and to ourselves. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jill Hammer. Hello, Jill Hammer, and welcome to the Open Div Project. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Of the many hats that you wear, you're a rabbi, a scholar, an author, a teacher, a mystic, a priestess. And I first heard about you and your work through Tayama and her podcast. And I myself come from Judaism and identify as culturally Jewish. And although I've never been very into the religious aspect of it, the mystical uh, side of Judaism has always fascinated me. And I guess... Uh, your work in particular is very interesting to me because it seeks to go beyond mainstream traditional Judaism, kind of what you might find in the rabbinic world. And it really pushes for, you know, folk-based and dream interpretation and uh, the mystical elements of Judaism. And I just think that for me personally, that's so refreshing. Thank you for doing this work, first and foremost. Thank you. It's been my joy to see uh, how many people are engaging in this kind of Judaism today. Yeah. And what is your sense about how many people are open to or engaging actively in, in this kind of Judaism? I don't have a number for you, but what I yeah, can I don't, tell you... I didn't expect to. Yeah, <laughs> that, uh, you know, after a number of, of years of doing this work, you know, I am seeing different communities engaging you know, in a more embodied, earth-based, you know, sometimes mystical Right, Jewish practice uh, in lots of different ways, right? There are people who are engaging in Jewish meditation. There are people who are creating, practicing, uh, bringing to their communities earth-based Jewish ritual that's focused on, you know, the experience of being on the earth. You know, there are people who are looking for alternative Jewish sources, right, that are not the sort of one learned in Hebrew school, right, but a magical text, mystics diaries, you know, all kinds of Sephardic women's healing chants, you know, all kinds of important sources, right, that we don't necessarily think of as, as the central ones, but that have so much wisdom to offer. Yeah. And let's dig into that a little bit. Why are those not thought of as the central ones? How did we get to the current conception of Judaism and, and what has been sort of lost or ignored along the way? Well, there are a couple of complicated factors here. I mean, one has to do with the idea of canonization. Right, and, and sort of who gets to you know, render a text authoritative. These books are sacred, these books are not. Right? Um, so this, uh, you know, Jewish law is sort of central to Judaism, folk practices, peripheral. You know? You know, that usually has to do with who has power you know, in a particular society, in a particular generation. For example, you know, male mystics, you know, mystics who are men, right, say, um, 
you know, write things and people preserve them for hundreds of years, right? Women write things that don't get preserved, right? Mm -hmm. Those things have um, a big impact on how, you know, this uh, particularly text-based society, right, views itself. Mm. And it really, um, it changes the dynamic when you say, I'm actually going to look at all these sources as equal, right? And not look at some as central and some as peripheral. And particularly what that does is allow for the voices of minority groups, minority belief systems, right? Uh, oppressed groups of people, right? To begin to have more of a voice in the culture when we democratize uh, the sources in that way. And so what are those sources where you can hear those voices? So some of my favorites, for example, I've been uh, writing about Seyfri at Sirah, uh, which is a, a well-known Kabbalistic work. It's not considered you know, marginal, but it isn't what people tend to study. People tend to study later Kabbalistic works. A Seyfri at Sirah is a, a mystical work that was written prior to the Kabbalah that we think of as mainstream. It has its own way of thinking about the world. It has a very earth-based tone to it in my reading of it. And it's not widely studied. So I spent some time, uh, by no means the first, but you know, I, I spent some time creating an earth-based kind of commentary and translation of Sefer Yetzirah. Um, so that's one source that I love. What is the book that you wrote on that? So it's called Return to the Place, the Return Magic, the place. Meditation, and Mystery of Sefer Yetzirah, which means the Book of Creation. Yeah. And it is an important text in mystical Judaism where the letters of the Hebrew language play a, you know, a really powerful, uh, just to say magical, feels like it's uh, not enough to capture how powerful those letters are, are in the Sefer Yetzirah's uh, uh, vision. Yeah. What's so fascinating to me is that Sefer Yetzirah understands the letters not only to be components of words, but to be elemental components of things. Like that the letters give rise to fire and air and water and breath, right? Uh, that uh, the letters are at the same time language and embodiments. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that's an amazing bringing together of two different ways of seeing the world. Yeah, and I think it really also speaks to the way that words are magic. And in Judaism, it's words are more than magic. Words are words are divine. Words are, the, in some ways, the very foundations of creation. And in a psychological sense as well, like, uh, you know, at least, at least from the, if you're looking at the linguistic part of the mind, it's like, yeah, that's how that part of our brain makes meaning of the world. The world makes sense uh, through words. And, you know, almost uh, if that didn't exist, we would just be left with, I don't know. It would be hard to, to make sense of the world. <laughs> well, one of the things that words has allowed for, right, is for Jews to go everywhere in the world and still feel grounded in their tradition. Because mm. you can pick up a text and take it with you. Right yeah. at the time that people lost, you know, the temple lost their, you know, their sense of sovereignty, right? Uh, when a lot of the embodied religious practice was not available, right? When Jews went into exile, right? What was available was their stories, you know, their words, their texts. Interesting, interesting. So it's it's um, whereas you know in other uh, other traditions might be very rooted to a place or certain mountains, rivers, uh, whatnot. The Judaism was rooted in the language itself which could be carried around in books or, or orally. Of course, it depends on when you're talking about, but right. That's a, and Sefer Yetzirah is such an interesting thing with that in that it takes the words and makes them the things, right? It says the words are also, you know, the, the, the body of the earth. Uh, so in some ways it, it does, makes a kind of circle, right? It, it goes into that magic of the word and that 
portability of the word and then also reroots it, you know, in a sense of elemental belonging. Yeah, and let's keep going. What what other sources do you find uh, speak these kind of minority views that uh, we don't currently hear in Judaism? So another source that I'm interested in is, is you know, what is loosely called you know magic, you know Jewish magical sources. And magic is really in many ways a political term, right? The religious authorities do rituals, right? Mm. Uh, religiously marginalized practitioners do magic, right? I totally agree that they're. They're essentially one and the same thing, just <laughs> the distinction. Uh, yeah, okay, so, so magical sources, what are those? Where do you find those? Well, there are magical sources written in the Talmud. I mean, if you go looking for them, they're there. But you can also find them in uh, certain Jewish magical books, like the Book of Raziel. You can find them in documentation of folk practices. I mentioned earlier uh, the incantation tradition of Sephardic women. Uh, which has been documented mostly in recordings, you know, is an amazing uh, liturgical tradition of healing, you know, and uh, that uses salt and herbs and other, you know, other vehicles than prayer and other vehicles for healing, you know, wouldn't have been considered, you know, on the books, right, but, but is a really important piece of that realm of Jewish culture. You can also go and look in, in European sources, right, and you can look at Yiddish women's practices around the cemetery, right, and, and magic around, you know, ancestors, you know, making candles that represent the ancestors. So, you know, these sources have been documented by folklorists, right, and, and you know, by, uh, by Yiddishists, by uh, people who are trying to preserve these, uh, these traditions before they get lost. And you can also really see it in the Kabbalah, which we think of as, as you know, maybe not exactly mainstream today, but certainly, you know, a big piece of, of you know, how Jews have approached the world, but when it started, Kabbalah wasn't uh, mainstream. You know, it was really yeah. just a it was very marginalized. Of, right, a couple of groups of strange mystics. You know, uh, you know, with a completely new way of thinking about God. Tell me about how the earth comes into play and nature comes into play here, and how how can we make that more of a focus because it's increasingly necessary. So there are really a few ways to think about that. I mean, one way, right, is to actually look at back at biblical sources, right, in which the culture is very land-based, right, really is very paying attention to when is planting, when is harvest, right, when does it rain. The worries are agricultural worries, and they're, you know, and they are, um, you know, they're very connected to the land. So that's one way, you know, I uh, have seen, you know, amazing sort of re-enlivening, you know, of some of those ways of, uh, experiencing holidays, for example, looking at holidays as land-based rather than only story-based, right, as they're often presented to Jews. Another opportunity, you know, really comes through the Kabbalah again, which has a view of divinity that really is embodied in the physical world. That is, the Kabbalah's view of the ethereal realms is that they extend into the physical realms. And we don't really see that as much in earlier Jewish sources, where we really have a complete distinction between the physical world and the, you know, and the spiritual world or sort of the world of, you know, uh, of divinity and the angelic world. Mm-hmm. And the Kabbalah really understands nature to be infused with divinity, right, in, in a way that one can, uh, you know, that one can experience if one tunes in. And I think that that tradition, which is significant, you know, really takes on new meaning in an age when we are trying so hard to connect to the natural world as a place of meaning, you know, and as really the source of our lives, that tradition has language for that experience, right, of understanding nature as sacred source and 
a body of the cosmos in a you know in a way that is deeply connected to us yeah yeah that phrase the body of the cosmos i saw it on on your website and it struck me because uh, i never thought of it that way but yeah the, you know the natural world the physical world yeah it's uh, it's the body of the cosmos it is a part of <laughs> uh you know this you know and earth is our, our small little piece of it but it's a part of the the physical body of the cosmos and and thinking thinking of it that way it's it it embodies you know, you're suddenly encompassing the entire universe, the entire uh, expanse of everything. At least to me, it was, it was a very striking image because it also implies that the need to to be able to, to care for, for that body. That if, if divinity is infused into the world around us, harming it and really treating it with wanton abandon, it, it is sac- sacrilege. It is blasphemy in that sense. Yes. And it also implies that we are interconnected, right? We have a, uh, you know, an intrinsic connection to everything such that what we do impacts everything, right? And what happens out there and that everything impacts us. So that piece of it, I think, also is very relevant for how we would want people to think about our, you know, even saying the natural world in a sense is a problem, right? Because, you know, it's not like we're something and nature is something else, right? Mm. We're, We're actually completely... Right, interwoven you know, with uh, you know, what we call the natural world, but which in fact is not at all different from, from us or our experience. Yeah, so we, we should just be saying the world. Right, right. Yeah. Right, and we say the natural world to, def- to uh, kind of defend ourselves from, you know, oh, there's me, and then there's you know, the bugs and the, you know, and the, you know, the sunlight and you know, all that that's out there. Right, right. And it's, you know, um, distinguishing human beings as somehow others, somehow well, maybe more special mm-hmm. uh, or, than, than the natural world, which, you know, is something that's very, it, it's ingrained in a lot of our stories and a lot of our the mythos. And I, I think in, I guess, do you see that distinction being made in Judaism early on that humans are, well, I mean, yeah, in some ways, even in the Garden of Eden, right, there's a, a sense that Adam and Eve are somehow specially connected to God. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's this passage about, you know, humans being made in the image of God, you know, that there definitely is this somewhat human-centric sense, you know, in these texts that seems to feed into the idea of humans being separate from the rest of the world. Although, you know, again, later on, mystics questioned that, you know, began to talk about the entire cosmos as the body of God, that everything was made in some way in God's image. Uh, they're really returning to this, you know, ecological sense of, of sanctity. But early on in the Bible, you have a, a pretty clear sense of humans' separateness and their particular, you could regard it as particular authority, or you could regard it as particular responsibility, as some people do, for taking care of the whole thing. Yeah. And I know that you've been involved with Kohanet, and maybe were you, were you a founder of Kohanet? Is, yes. Yeah, okay. Say a little bit more about what that is and maybe some of the work that the graduates have, have been doing along similar lines. So the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute was really founded to center you know, these spiritual practitioners, women and other marginalized folks who have been spiritual leaders for millennia, but have not necessarily been recognized that way until recently in history. And to look at sources uh, about them and Think about how does that impact our spiritual leadership and our practice of Judaism today. And in particular, Kohanet is looking at 
a model of Jewish life that is earth-based, that is embodied, and uh, that is feminist and, and liberatory. And we have been now training uh, graduates for uh, something like, you know, 16 years. And we have graduates in all parts of the country and Canada and other, you know, other places and people in the, in the United Kingdom. And uh, our graduates do different things. They lead rituals for people. They are sacred artists, you know, making sacred art that is, you know, that creates meaning. Uh, some of them are chaplains. Uh, some of them are rabbinical school. You know, some of them are uh, healers of various kinds. So we actually try to help each person identify sort of what is the sacred work that they want to do in the world uh, and to refine that work. And this is a, you know, a way of diversifying Jewish leadership and Jewish culture and of making sure that there is a group of people who is charged with paying attention you know, to, these, uh, you know, to these other models of Jewish leadership and, and bringing them in to Jewish life. Yeah, I think on again on your website you mentioned that there had been like three thousand year old um, statues of Jewish priestesses with drums, yeah. um, you know, which uh, says many different things. But you know, the importance of of drumming and music in early Judaism, as as well as you know, priestesses that they were an integral part of temple rituals and and practice. We generally think of you know, the priesthood in ancient Israel as male, right? But if you actually look in the biblical text and you look in the archaeology, what you can see is that it appears to be more diverse than that. Or we have some characters in the Bible who aren't called priestesses, but who clearly are priestesses. They're functioning in that role. Miriam is probably the most obvious example, right? Who's doing music, choral music and dance, which is what priestesses did in the ancient Near East, right, in prophecy. And uh, we also see, you know, for example, the statues, you know, that you noted that scholar Sarit Paz thinks are statues of Israelite priestesses uh, with drums. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. And it makes a difference to people to feel that they're standing in, a, in that long lineage, right? When you yeah. feel that, you know, nobody made people like you spiritual leaders until 1970, you know, that, that feels a little bit different and a little more vulnerable than feeling that you have, you know, the weight of, you know, an ancestry behind you. you know, it, yeah. It, it makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. We also get to re-enliven practices that are more mystical or more earth-based, like, you know, like the dream work you mentioned, you know, like the making of, you know, amulets and other sacred art, you know, those sorts of practices that we take an interest in. Yeah. And speaking about dream work, Let's let's talk about your new book, upcoming book. It's actually like in the mail. Like, uh, oh wow, wow! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's under Torah, uh, an Earth-based Kabbalah of dreams. Yes. Yeah, I I took a look at it, leafed through it. I I'm going to take a much deeper dive when I have more time. But it, you know, it's basically it, the premise is, you know, like the dream interpretation, visions, this was a part of, you know, and, and not, not a hidden part of Judaism. You see it in, in uh, the Torah, you know, Jacob and Joseph have, have their visions and, you know, there's, uh, was it, Re Rebecca goes to an oracle and, you know, so there's, there's this question of, okay, well, where, where does this go? You know, like, I mean, do we have any kind of Jewish based dream practices and interpretations today? Or did you have to go back and, and basically reinvent it? Oh, no, we have them. They haven't been emphasized, you know, in sort of, you know, contemporary Jewish culture. But that's at least as much because of the prevailing societal view that dreams are not important as it is, you know, anything about Jewish culture. 
Right? Jews have been working with their dreams from the beginning. You know, as you say, we have dreams being worked from the Bible as sources of wisdom, right, as sources of prophecy. We have a section on dreams in the Talmud, right, that talks about dream rituals and how to, you know, how to work with dreams. There is anxiety about it in Jewish culture because Jews have a sacred text. And if you have these prophetic dreams kind of intruding with their own weird ideas, you know, then that begins to kind of create, you know, a more diverse sense of the sacred, right? And so there's there's a little anxiety about it. But nevertheless, you know, there continues to be dream practice. So for example, um, the Kabbalist Chaim Vital in Sfat keeps a diary and he writes about, you know, women who come to him saying, I had a dream about you or who interpret his dreams. Like there's, you know, there, there's definitely dream practice going on, you know, in that and community. That, and that's happening today. The incident I just mentioned is from the 16th century, but it is happening today. I mean, in a sense, you know, all dream work is infused with some Jewish dream work because, you know, Freud knew about this Jewish tradition, right, and brought it into some extent into his own work, which is quite different, but, you know, in some ways is related. And, you know, there are a number of Jewish dream workers today who are, you know, continuing to bring this tradition into the present. And, uh, you know, my experience is that dreams have a wonderful, potentially embodied and earth-based quality to the revelations that they bring us because the wisdom in dreams is very embodied, right? It's, mm. you're, you're not reading something, you're walking around in it, you know, you're walking around in a landscape, you're talking to people, right? And that embodied vision, right, then can potentially offer us guidance for our lives, you know, you know as individuals, as a society. And lots of indigenous cultures, of course, know this, right? And, you know, make a regular practice of sharing dreams, often at the breakfast table. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, thinking about them as a serious source of wisdom, and not just as random firings of the brain. Um, yeah, uh, you know that is, uh, I think, a really compelling model. Yeah, yeah, and you, and you mentioned uh, Freud just now. One thing I was interested in asking you is obviously early uh, psychology put a lot of a lot of stock in in dreams. Um, Freud and uh, Carl Jung as well, and then others after them, but. How influential are you know the works of Freud or, or Jung? Because when I think of dream interpretation analysis, looking at you know I think you mentioned and the mythological and the collective unconscious, you know the, that's Jung's language. So I'm curious uh, what connections or influence the, they may have had. Yeah, I mean I would say certainly I see Jung's influence you know in lots of people's work, including mine. You know the idea of collective archetype. But what's different really, right, is that Freud and, and Jung. Well, Freud is really looking at people's psychology, right? And uh, is kind of in, in, in some ways imposing you know, that model. And I see dreams as kind of wilder than that. And having wisdom that doesn't only come from our needs and desires and fears, you know, but really from our subtle perceptions of what is beyond us. That's probably more in line with Jung. Mm -hmm. But Jung also tends to see dreams as symbols, that you know, things in dreams symbolize things. And there's a lot of value in, in, what, you know, in what Jung is offering. But I tend to avoid the word symbol because a symbol is kind of a consciously chosen item that represents a different item. You know, so for example, right, the matzah on the Seder plate, right, represents liberation, right, we could say. Mm -hmm. But items in dreams aren't symbols. They don't consciously represent other things. They're a language that our, our inner world, an embodied language that our consciousness is using to communicate something. And it's not really a symbolic language. It's more like, you know, something feels like water. So, you know, so there's water in the dream or, you know, I have fear. So there's something that frightens me in the dream, right? So it's, it's a much more web-like 
language structure and it's not so rigid. Like I would never tell somebody to look up uh, something in a dream dictionary. Right. Um, you know, that wouldn't really take into account you know, the personal relationship we have with the things in our dreams and the people in our dreams. Yeah. And the way you're talking about them uh, reminds me of uh, Bill Plotkin and his writing on dreams. He does uh, vision quests and guides people into the wilderness. And yeah, he similarly advises people not to not to go look up uh, their dreams in, in dream dictionaries because there's this kind of openness to dreams, this this multi-dimensional, multi-faceted way of understanding them, or maybe even not understanding them, but having them work on your psyche, work on your your being, nonetheless, even if you have no real concrete idea of how to interpret them. Yeah, in a sense. When I work with a community to read a dream, we invite everyone who's heard the dream to have the opportunity to, to offer the wisdom they see in the dream, assuming, as the Talmud does, that the dream has many different facets, mm. right? that there might be lots of different kinds of meaning in the dream, and that I might see one angle of that, and you might see a different angle of that. And that yeah. ultimately, the dream is more mysterious than any meaning that we could offer, but that we might be able to sort of follow the wisdom, the path in the dream. And uh, we might receive healing from that. You know, I certainly have talked to and also experienced uh, healing of physical and emotional hurts and trauma that come in dreams. Uh, they really have quite an extraordinary power yeah. when one begins to pay attention to them. Yeah, and, and almost that looking at uh, the dream from different angles, like as a community, that parallels the way that people interpret sacred texts mm -hmm. in Judaism, right? It's the very same kind of process, and uh, there's no one interpretation. It's you know multifaceted. Every word has you know however thousand different meanings, so the saying goes. And I guess this is um, what you were talking about earlier, where people might get a little bit nervous about dreams because. Uh, they seem to maybe challenge, not challenge, but like they are another, could be seen as another source of sacred message. Yeah. One of my uh, teachers, Dr. Catherine Shainberg, talks about the ways that we are always dreaming, that we are always visioning, you know, there's always images arising in us. Yeah, I think that that's exactly it, right? If, if our sacred messages are much more eclectic, right, and much more diverse, right, than any sacred text, then we have a, a transformed relationship to what is sacred information. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, you know, that's both, you know, more personal, right, but also, you know, has the potential to be worked in community, you know, in some really beautiful ways. And I think it is exactly like in the way the Jews have dealt with sacred text. In fact, the Talmud is almost explicit about that. You know, they talk about, you know, the, the you know, I went to 24 dream interpreters and they all gave me an interpretation and they all came true. Right? That's exactly what they would say about Torah, right? Um, so it's very authentic, I think, to, to Jewish culture to work with dreams in that way. Also allows, you know, it, it allows the dreamer to, you know, to try things on and see what feels right. Because ultimately it's the dreamer who has to decide what the dream means for them. Yeah. So for somebody listening to this recording, how might they, you know, besides uh, getting your book and, and reading it all, how might you approach a dream? Yeah. From maybe a Jewish lens, you know, what, what would that look like? So one could begin, first of all, by, you know, before you go to sleep, inviting dreams, right? That's actually a practice called dream incubation, which, you know, is common among Jewish dream workers. Uh, to, uh, you know, to ask for a dream about a particular issue, perhaps, that one is having, or just, you know, to ask for dreams that are meaningful and, uh, and will bring wisdom. And to, uh, 
record them when you wake up, right, to, to offer gratitude for them, right? That would be a Jewish dream practice. And in terms of looking inside them, the Zohar says that when you dream, you actually, your soul goes on a journey. Like you actually go to the place of the, the presence and you experience things and then your soul comes back and tells you about it. Right? And that's what a dream is. So if you think about the dream as a journey in that way, you can look at, so, so what happened in the dream? I tend to look first at the landscape of the dream. Mm. Did, I, did I come across a mountain? Did I come across a tree? Right? Was I inside a house? You know, what is that? What does that place or landscape mean to me? Um, you know, what can I learn or, or what wonder can I experience by deeply going into that landscape? Uh, for example, recently I dreamed of, a, I was walking through a garden and all the trees were covered in drops that were just barely frozen. So they were like you know, sparkling and it was wonderful. Mm. You know, so that kind of landscape is just a moment, you know, to bring wonder into your life. You know, or there could be a scary landscape, like um, many dreamers talk about experiencing a flood, right? Mm. So I, I might take that in, you know, is this a global warning or is this, you know, something about my sense of being flooded by something, right? How might I check out that landscape? Mm. Now, are there particular characters in the dream that are offering loving witness or help, right? How might I see those characters as, as guardians or as healers for me? You know, what does the dream suggest I might change about my life, if, uh, if anything. Mm. So some of those things. And also going to people to ask them to uh, witness your dream, if it was a dream that, you, that you're puzzled about, you know, would be a Jewish practice. And uh, you also speak in the book about how sometimes the dreams you have have messages for you. Sometimes they have messages for someone else you know. And sometimes mm -hmm. there may be even communal uh, messages, messages for the community. And... I particularly like the, you know, yeah, that idea of, of sharing the dreams with others because it becomes a social uh, thing. It becomes not just you and yourself. It, uh, uh, and even in that a circle of people you're talking about where everyone provides a different interpretation, you have the opportunity to, to yeah, to see all these different meanings in, in a dream. And, and maybe it's that dream is going to resonate with, with someone else there. That's right. It's like when you read a sacred text, even if it's not, you know, even if you didn't write it, you know, it might still have amazing wisdom in it for you. You know, that's how people sometimes experience other people's dreams. And, uh, and also the feeling in dreams, you know, allows us to become come alive, right, as we experience it. You know, often in dreams there's, you know, there's fear, there's joy, there's connection, right, there's anger. And those feelings, when there's a particular moment of feeling in a dream, it's a good place to pay attention, Another teacher of mine, Roger Kamenetz, taught me this. And also, I find that when there's a particular moment of real beauty, like often when you're really drawn to something, like some, you know, everything is not particularly colorful, and then there's like something is really bright blue, you know, like that thing, you know, is often for me the, the heart of the dream that I want mm. to meditate on later. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's almost like, um, thinking about in, in terms of like animation, like it's some of the same techniques that you might see used there to symbolize this is important. <laughs> right. Um, right. Exactly. Your dream does that too. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. For a while I've, I've actually been thinking about uh, the crossovers between imagination and, and animation. Uh, mm. but that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> you know, well, some people look at dreams as the imaginal realm. You know, and, you know, I like to think of them as the place where the imaginal realm meets the world, you know, because when you're asleep, you're very vulnerable, you're very porous. 
So perceptions that you might not be aware of in waking life, like your body on the ground, you know, like your body on the earth, right, become more salient when, uh, you know, when you're sleeping. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Jill, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure talking and discussing some of your work with you. And for those that are interested in finding out more, uh, obviously the new book uh, under Torah, as well as the book on the Sefer Yetzirah. What is that one called again? The Return to the Place. Return to the Place. Yeah. And Kohanet is obviously there for, for anybody interested in learning more about that. And yeah, thank you again so much for taking the time. And I hope the coming snowstorm doesn't do too much damage. Oh, it's a beautiful, a beautiful living dream. <laughs> Let's put it uh, that way. Amen. Thank you so much, Daniel. It really has been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Open Div podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear more, you can visit us at opendiv.org, where you'll find over 70 other conversations with thought leaders, academics, and practitioners about the future of spirituality and meaning making. You can also sign up for our email list to hear about upcoming classes, podcast releases, and other fantastic offerings. Again, I'm Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and as the host of this season, I want to extend special thanks to all our guests for sharing their wisdom, to Casey Rosengren for helping produce this season, and for Engin Hassan for editing and sound design. If you like this episode, please rate it or share it with a friend. Thank you again for joining us. This is The Open Div Project.